that's the best I'm going to get tonight. <laughs> that's just so, Toby, you know, if you you find yourself kind of faltering, just grab that thing. And, uh, my name's Danny. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I've had the uh, gift of sobriety since February the 18th of 81. Um, I'm, I'm really never nervous until I get up here, and then I always wonder, why did I say I would do this? Uh, so I have a little, you know, I have a little bit of a rapid heartbeat, and I, but that'll go away. So if you'll just stare at me, that always makes me feel better. <laughs> sort of relaxing, you know. I was, uh, I love, I love AA. I have a home group. Uh, it's the Cypresswood group in Northwest Houston. It's a very active group, and I love it very much. We uh, we're really into the into the service work, uh, a lot of H and I stuff. I go to prisons around the Houston area pretty frequently, and uh, and you know it's really interesting. I when I when you hear my story, I have a reason why I chose prisons. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not like that anymore. But I will say they have a little they have a little uh, expense stipend. It's very small, but they they have it for you when they, when you speak or when you get here for odds and ends. And I had to chase Vern down to get mine. <laughs> so I don't. He says he didn't. Ha- we, we didn't have much interaction. He didn't. Uh, he just took off. <laughs> That's when I found out he was unemployed. <laughs> anyway. No, it's been, it's been great, and uh, I want to thank the uh, I want to thank the committee for inviting me, and uh, and and I do thank Vern for it. He's been very helpful. Uh, he drives really safe. Uh, look, <laughs> he has a thing that looks like a breathalyzer though in his car, so I was a little suspect when I first got in there. But he says it's not. So, but he didn't blow in it. And thank you for the for the lovely basket of fruit which I've already eaten. Because uh, I, I sit around my room and eat, you know. So I'm glad you didn't give me a bunch of sugar. And uh, Mari, I love Mari. Uh, Mari and I have spoke together a lot recently. So uh, you don't have to stay if you want to. If you get tired of this, I know you know it. But she's. Uh, we were in uh, in Maui together, and that was pretty cool. You know, it's, it's tough service, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, uh, I usually start my uh, talk off with a joke, but I've told this joke so many times that the tapers have asked me not to do it anymore. <laughs> but I always liked it. It's the, I'm not good at remembering jokes, you know, but I've got this one down, so I tell it over and over and over again. Anyway, so I won't tell it, and I'll go on. <laughs> That's the way I set that joke up, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, it's really, it hasn't got anything to do with alcoholism. I just like telling it. Anyway, it's, uh, this lady walks into a pharmacy, and she just goes right straight back to the pharmacist and says, um, I'd like to buy some cyanide. And he said, what for? She said, I want to poison my husband. He said, ma'am, you can't walk in here and order cyanide to kill your husband. They'll put us both in jail. And she reached in her purse and pulled out a picture of his wife and her husband in bed together. He said, well, that's different. I didn't know you had a prescription. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I loved Mari's talk. I, I loved all the speakers. I know I'm going to love Toby. Toby's going to be fantastic. And, uh, man, thank you, Toby. Yeah. Anyway, Toby's been ribbing me. He's, he's made me feel very insecure, and, uh, which you don't really have to work very hard at doing that, you know. Anyway, I, I tell you a little bit about, uh, about my uh, history, my life in, uh, in before AA. Uh, it was not all that great, actually. Uh, it took a long time. I... Uh, I found, I'll tell you, my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was in uh, 710 Club, Midland, Texas. I got my wife kicked me out of the car in front of that club. 
And she did it because I was like, you know, I was really, I've been drunk a while and I was real sick and I was too weak to resist. And she pushed me out of the car because she had a date with her boyfriend. And I was very upset because I thought, well, this will ruin our marriage. And I, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, I go into this club to get a ride so I can, you know, go save my marriage. And, and I walk in here and, and, you know, and here are these people sitting around, they're, they're smoking cigarettes and playing gin. And when I came in, they were instantly glad to see me. And, uh, you know, before long, they were talking to me about if you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. And I thought, well, I, you know, I think you're right. That, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure what your point is, but that seems to make sense to me. And... Uh, and anyway, I sat there and I kept asking for a ride to go away. And they said, well, why don't you stay for our meeting? And they would talk to me about the, about alcoholism. They said, you know, they talked about themselves mostly. And uh, which is interesting. We do that a lot, you know. When you come into AA and you go up to somebody and you say, do you think I'm alcoholic? The, answer, the first thing he's probably going to do is tell you all about himself. You know, it's very annoying. <laughs> and you go to the next person and you'll do the same thing. You know, it's just like... I was asking you about me. I don't really want to hear your whole story. But eventually, you'll, if you're lucky, you'll suddenly hear something that sounds just like you, and it's not you. And it's the most wonderful th gift in the world. It's the gift of identification. But I was in this place, and they wouldn't let me go, so I had to stay for their meeting. And they had this, they had this big meeting, and, they, and in 710 Club, they would call people up, and they would talk from the podium. And then it goes down. And the worse the story was, the more they enjoyed it. And, you know, I just, and it seemed to me like it went on for a couple of hours, but it didn't. And, you know, when it was over, they all stood up, held hands, and said the Lord's Prayer. And then that place just erupted into laughter. It was a wonderful spirit. And that place, and it seemed to me like it just parted like right down this hallway. And here come a guy straight for me, a little short, dour looking guy with a flat top. And two young guys followed him. And I thought, oh, hell no, I'm not going anywhere with him. <laughs> and he walked straight up to me and he said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we're going to Baskin Robbins for ice cream. Would you like to go? And I thought, be still my beating heart. <laughs> Baskin Robbins for ice cream. <clears throat> In my mind, I thought, there is no way on God's green earth that I'm going to go off with a bunch of geriatrics for ice cream while my wife is out with her boyfriend. That ain't happening. But, but what came out of my mouth was, sure, I'd love to go. So I wound up over at Baskin Robbins holding a melting Rocky Road ice cream, listening to people say, if you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. And apparently they could tell that I really wasn't getting it, so they, you know, the young guy says, let me explain it to him. And he stood up there and he said, listen, son, he said, it's not the, the caboose that kills you, it's the locomotive. And I thought, I should have brought pencil and paper. <laughs> I'm sure this is going to be helpful. But right now, I just need to go home. You know, and... And, you know, sometime after that, I started going to some AA meetings around Midland. And, you know, I remember going to a few and I was thinking, I, you know, this is, I get tense being sober. You know, I like going to, I like the people in AA, but not drinking is, just doesn't agree with me. <laughs> and I would leave the meetings and, and I remember going to a 7-Eleven and, you know, I went in there and I, I, I got a six pack and I was walking back out to my car and I saw one of those guys from AA. Boy, and I stuck that six-pack way down, you know. And I thought, well, what's up with that? Why would it bother me that he would see me with a six-pack of, of booze? And it, But then I decided I wouldn't get it at 7-Eleven anymore, since you all go there. And, and, and then, you know, then the next thing you know, you know, you're popping up all over town. You can't go, you go to the grocery store, and they're waving at you, you know. <laughs> and you think, jeez. This is, uh, I didn't even know we had any alcoholics in Midland, you know, and they're, they're just about everybody's in AA. <laughs> but, 
I was very, I was very fortunate. That was such a, that was such a, a wonderful period of my life. Uh, uh, being in 710 Group in Midland, Texas in the late 70s and the early 80s was just, it was fabulous. Clancy used to fly in there all the time because he went to that Big Spring State Hospital and he liked to come back and visit all the time. So I was exposed to him and, and Bob over here and I was, you know, they were my heroes. And I, I had a little cassette player, you know, one of those little, the little bitty ones, man, and I would ride around and listen to AA tapes, listen to Franklin Williams and Bob Bazans and listen to Clancy and just think, what well, this is just the most fabulous thing in the world. And if I ever quit drinking, I'd like to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so that was sort of pre-AA. That was, uh, you know, I've got, I've been sober since February the 18th of 81, and I, but I have to have been around date, you know, before that. You know, everybody, you go up and ask somebody who's, these days you'll say, well, how long have you been sober? And they'll say, well, I've been sober six months, but I've been around since. And so I had a been-around date. And uh, and it's very it's a very difficult time in those been-arounds, you know. I, uh, I'll tell you a little about a bit why my wife would kick me out of our car. And uh, it, it kind of goes back a little ways. My, my mom and dad were married on Valentine's Day, 1944. My mother was 14, and my dad was 19. Uh, he immediately went off uh, in, into the, uh, you know, into the South Pacific in the Navy and fought in the in the South Pacific and left my mother to raise me. And at 14, she really didn't know very much. Her mother had died in a in a sanitarium of Barry Barry. Her uh, grandfather, my grandfather, was this religious nut who was off on some sort of crusade and had left all the kids alone. So she just had me down in South Texas, and her her basic teaching was. Stop that, you know. <laughs> so, and my dad, my dad was off, and he, he fought in the South Pacific, and he's a wonderful guy. He's one of the greatest generation, and I just adore him to this day. And when he came back, uh, he came back to a family that uh, didn't know what to do. We were all children, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he had seen things that are not good for a man to see. And he drank to try to overcome all that. Now, my dad's not an alcoholic. He was just a hard drinker. And he had a lot of things that he wanted to resolve. Uh, but eventually he, he put that away and he started burying himself in work. And, uh, and we just kind of grew up. I, uh, I, I heard Mar- Mari last night use a phrase that, uh, that we talk about a lot. We, we, didn't, we don't fit in our skin. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm thinking I don't do it anymore. I used you know, I mean, I'm look, looking in the mirror when I was shaving. And I thought, hell, I don't fit in my skin now. <laughs> But uh, but I felt I felt agitated and insecure, and I was a very nervous child, and I just I was afraid of everything. And I, you know, as as I as we progressed in life, I remember going to uh, elementary school, and we would go in, and they would show us this movie called Duck and Cover, uh, and you go in and watch Duck and Cover, and this is a movie of what to do if a nuclear bomb goes off in your neighborhood. <laughs> And I'm already feeling insecure to begin with. And, you know, the other kids are learning ABCs. I'm watching Duck and Cover. And, and I'm, you know, and I saw what you do. You, when they, when it goes off, you go into the hallway and you open your, your book and you put it over your head. And, and I, and it's, I'm not the best student, but I know that's inadequate. That's, uh, <laughs> there's, that, that can't possibly be the answer. So I'm walking home from school, and other kids are wanting to play sports, and they're wanting to join the safety patrol, and and I'm by myself, and I'm trying to figure out what I've got to do to secure myself here because this is the, looks pretty bad in my mind. And I noticed that they have these little igloos everywhere, you know. And I I asked my dad. I said, "What are those?" He said, "They're uh, they're bomb shelters." I said, "Where's ours?" He said, "Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. Nobody's going to get bomb Midland, Texas." But I decided that I'm going to have to leave home because I can't stay with you. You you don't have a bomb shelter, and I've seen duck and cover. And uh, so, anyway, I have two younger brothers, and you know, by the time I'm 13 years old, I'm I'm pretty pretty wound up, you know. And 
Just before I turned 14, I, uh, I took off and went down to the place where the big boys hang out. And I was just down there that night wanting so badly to fit in. And I was just felt, you know, I was just a little skinny guy with, you know, my, my distinguishing mark was pimples, you know. And, <laughs> and I'm standing there and I want, to, I want to fit in. And they offer me a drink. And I take a drink mostly because I believe today I just wanted to, I wanted to be accepted. And I took a drink and nothing happened. But, but about the time I took the third or fourth drink, I began to get this glow. And I mean tell you, I felt so good. I could, uh, I could do and say things that I had not been able to do and say. I did fit in my skin. I got in a fight and I didn't win, but I didn't care. I gave it my best and I felt good about that. I hit on a girl I didn't even know what for. Uh, but, <laughs> but I did it anyway. I got arrested by the juvenile authorities. I wrecked the car. I vomited. I pretty much had your basic alcoholic evening. <laughs> and uh, the next morning, of course, I've got this huge headache. I have to put one foot. You know, I remember that deal where you put one foot down because it stops the floor. You know, and so, and you know, you get out and you have a whole bunch of water and you know, and I and go in there. And of course, you're in a lot of trouble. And you, you know, at that particular moment, I thought, I'll never do that again with them. Uh, you know, because <laughs> they were obviously going to get me in a lot of trouble. But something had happened for me that night that I, I wasn't able to articulate. It happened on sort of a visceral level. I had found something that made me feel like I was as good as anyone else, if not better. And for the next 20 years of my life, I pursued that feeling over and over and over again to the gates of insanity and death, as the big book says. I, uh, I, it wasn't long after that that I was sent to the, uh, uh, I was sent to a hospital. You know, my, my folks decided I was nuts. I kept running away from home and I was, I had this big problem with depression. And uh, anyway, I wound up in the hospital and uh, spent three months over there, and I got out, you know, and, and, and I got drunk again. Actually, it was the other way around. I went to the hospital before I, I took that first drink, and then, and then I went back after that, after that little episode. And when I went back to the Big Spring State Hospital, they, just would, they locked me up in a locked ward because I was kept running away from, from the hospital. And while I was on this locked ward, uh, I had made my best friends. These guys were in the hospital. They were from my hometown, and they were getting shock treatments. And so, you know, we would play checkers and weave baskets and stuff. And But the more shock treatments they got, the less they were able to interact with me. So on Visitor's Day, I hatched a plan, and we stole a car from a lady that came to visit her little crazy son. And I got those two guys in the car. Which and we headed for Midland, Texas, 34 miles away, and we picked up two more guys who should have been in that hospital. <laughs> and we headed for Mexico, and this was a very exciting. I mean, I was really having a good time because I'm the leader of this. It's my first gang, <laughs> and you know the the police are after us, and you know it's just really it's pretty it's pretty energizing, you know, and. We're heading south, and, uh, you know, we would stop in little mom-and-pop stores, and, you know, we would go in and, and get supplies. You know, we'd get booze and bologna and things. And the way we did it, we would create a diversion so we could steal what we needed. And when you're escaped mental patients, creating a diversion is no problem. <laughs> so... But as we head south, as we're going along, those guys' meds be begin to wear off. And it became clear they were in that hospital for a reason. Uh, and it became increasingly difficult for me to gather my gang up and get them back in the car, you know. <laughs> so they were just kind of like herding cats, man. And, uh, and, but we finally got across the border, and I sold that car to a, ta to a Mexican taxi driver. And we get over to the Cadillac Bar in Del Rio, in, in, uh, across from Del Rio in Viacuña, Mexico. And we're in there, and, you know, order a drink, and we sit down. And this is when I realize I, this is as far as I've planned. And I, uh, I mean, and that becomes a theme for me. I, my, my motto for life for a long time was ready, fire, aim. 
and so we're just sitting down there, you know, having a drink, and I'm wondering, what do we do now? And all of a sudden, there's a commotion, and one of the guys that was with me had got into a fight, and he just killed a parrot that belonged to a lady that worked down there. <laughs> and it just caused a big commotion. So we're, we're in this big fight, and they, they called for the federales, so I said, we've got to get back to Texas. So we ran for the international border, but they caught us on the Mexican side, and we got thrown in Mexican jail. That's what I said. <laughs> And in, in the doctor's opinion, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says the alcoholic's problems pile up on him and become astonishingly difficult to solve. <laughs> and this is uh, one of those astonishingly difficult moments in my life because I don't, I don't speak Spanish at all. And, uh, and I don't even know how to tell these guys I want my mother. Uh, <laughs> And uh, my mom is, my mom, is she, at this point in my life, she is absolutely fixated on me. I have two younger brothers and a father who, who need their, they need their, uh, their wife and their mother too. But my mom has got, has got this thing that was just getting progressively worse, and that is, is that she just had, she felt so guilty about everything, and she just had to fix her number one son. So she was constantly worrying and spying and looking for me and trying to figure out how do you fix me and I wish uh, in case I forget I want to tell you that uh, it, today my mother uh, has 29 years in Al-Anon <laughs> she learned a word from you guys that saved my life and it was no <laughs> I don't know what else you do in Al-Anon but that was pretty effective uh, <laughs> Anyway, my mom found me down there, and she has a completely different story about how this all happened. And I heard her tell it one time. I said, where did you hear that? And she said, uh, she said, well, I was there. I said, well, I tell that story all the time, and that's not the way it happened. She said, son, some of your fondest memories never happened. <laughs> so, so, well, I said, well, I like my version better, <laughs> which turns out to be one of my problems. I've always liked my version of anything better, you know. I mean, I'm just kind of guy that's walking around. I have imaginary friends, and I live an imaginary life, and hence it makes it, makes it very difficult to, to fit into society. Anyway, my mom comes down, and she, fi she finds me. She gets me out and leaves them in j over there in that jail because she thought they would be a bad influence on me and uh, makes me ride back uh, across the border on the hood of the car because I have lice. And I get, she gets me all cleaned up. And all the way from all the 240-something miles back to Midland, her and her little friend from her church, they would, they would tune for Mexican music, and when they'd find it, they'd turn it all the way up. And then they would quote to me scriptures and shame me for my behavior. And it was her attempt at aversion therapy. And it, it really worked. I still hate that music. <laughs> um, so I got back, we got back to Midland, and you know, now I'm an escaped mental patient, right? And we get back to Midland, and, and my dad says, well, you know, he needs to join the Navy. And so that's what I happened. I turned 17, and the day I turned 17, I shipped off to San Antonio and out to, out to boot camp, and I was in the Navy, and I became a CB, and I grew big and strong, and and I'm a very patriotic person, even as crazy as I am. To this day, I am. And back then, I mean, you know, having a, having a uniform and a, and a weapon and marching in the company of men and having great purpose, is I love that. At least I like the sound of it. <laughs> in, in practice, getting up early and having people that you don't like tell you what to do and making you dress the way they dress all the time, I didn't like it all. Uh, so I wound up in the I wound up in the Navy. I was in the CBs. I grew big and strong, and I had an amazing capacity for booze. Uh, and so you know we're island hopping. Uh, this is before Vietnam, and we're island hopping all over the South Pacific. 
And, you know, I work in the, and in the daytime when I worked, I would, you know, I would be agitated and withdrawn and I didn't really hang out with anybody. I just wanted the day to be over and I could go back to the barracks and change into my civilian clothes and go to the local enlisted man's club and have a few drinks and enjoy myself. And I, and I would, invariably, that's what I would do. And I would always feel different than I did during the day. Now, my problem was, is I was having these personality changes. I mean, I, it was hard to say if I'd take a drink and I would be happy, or I might take a drink and start a fight, or I might just decide to leave the Navy. And uh, <laughs> and these these things created big problems for me. And, uh, I, you know, and I'm having, I'm getting increasingly more uh, isolated from people. I'm much more sensitive about everything that goes on in my life. And I feel agitated when I'm sober. And I don't know why it's not, it's like that for me and not like that for everyone else. But, uh, what happened, I'll just sum it up by telling you that in, uh, on Guam, uh, I got, went out and got drunk one night at, at the club with the, some guys that were from the, the British Navy. And they were aboard the HMS Lock Fata. And when we closed the club Macombo, they said that they had liquor rations aboard their ship. And I thought that couldn't be true because we don't get them. So I went with them to see if that was true. And while I was there, they went to sea. <laughs> and, <laughs> so... So I, you know, and they, of course, they count, and, and there's one guy that really sounds funny. So I'm a, you know, I get, I get arrested and put him into an American vessel and brought back to Guam, and I'm stripped down to the, the lowest possible rank, and I'm ridiculed by the battalion. And I, I have reached a place where I have such this bloated, negative ego that I can't take any ridicule at all. I burn with a vitriolic anger if you make fun of me. I, I feel intense shame, and I usually would attack. And uh, so uh, with all of that going on, and we shipped back to the States, uh, I started running away because I couldn't bear to be around everybody. And I would keep leaving, and they'd keep bringing me back because it's called AOL. <laughs> and eventually I attempted suicide. And at this point they thought, we need to check this guy out, and they found out they had an escaped mental patient in the Navy. <laughs> so... They uh, offered me a deal, you know, thought, well, you know, you'd, we'd, we'll give you an honorable discharge. Now, I would like to say this, if uh, at this point, I, I've been a little remiss. If you're new here tonight and you're, uh, you're a new person in Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome to AA. Uh, we're, we're very, very glad you're here. Welcome to the fastest growing organization in the world that no one wants to join. <laughs> and... And I will tell you that uh, you're listening to an escaped mental patient. <laughs> so, and listen, I'm not the only fruitcake around here. <laughs> In fact, I'll tell you, if you'll look around you, you look at people around these are people in here we have destroyed our lives through through drugs and alcohol and and we've got divorces and we've lived on skid row and been in prisons and i mean we've attempted suicide you name it uh and we'd like to guide you into your new life <laughs> That being said, we have a big book, uh, and it's uh, this. I'm just I'm just trying to set this up so you really understand that big book is very valuable. Uh, the big book is the quoting authority on alcoholism in AA. This tells you what's wrong with you. It tells you what al what alcoholism looks like, and it how to recover from it. And so I would recommend that you find somebody who seems to have a life that is going somewhere and a sparkle in their eye and has worked these steps and is willing to help you, and you can join this. I know that if you'll start at the blue cover and just turn right and just read the doctor's opinion and the first four chapters, by the time you get to the part where it says, if you want what we have, you'll know what it is that we have. And more importantly, you'll know what it is you have, and you'll be able to make the decision whether you want to stay or to go. And uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's my preaching for the evening. Uh, <laughs> I was still drinking, wasn't I? Yeah. 
I got kicked out of the Navy and I hit Skid Row. I went right to Skid Row and I made it up and down the coast of California and I learned to lie, cheat, and steal, sell plasma rather than blood. I lived in the same clothes for weeks at a time. I didn't know how to take care of myself and I was yet to be 21 years old. I, uh, I got to where I would black out a lot, pass out a lot, and I, I learned that all night theaters don't stay open all night. Uh, they close about four in the morning and you're left to walk around for the rest of the time. And anytime you sit down, somebody's going to kick you and get you to moving again. And it's no way to live. Uh, I left California and went back to Texas. Um, you know, but in California, they did introduce me to, uh, to amphetamines. They, the white crosses and things, man, you could, you could drink some beer and take some of those and go out and make some friends, you know, and talk to people, you know, and, uh, cured my blackout. I could drink and walk and, you know, didn't get tired. And, but it, uh, but the combination kind of made me rather volatile. And I got back to Texas and I tried to go to work for my dad. My dad had a fairly successful business and, you know, he didn't know what to do with me, but he wanted to give me a break and I tried to work for him and I caused so much trouble that he had to fire me and I started hanging out down at my bar and I met some guys that were, uh, that were going out at night and they were, they were stealing out of the oil field and uh, they came in and they all, they drove nice cars and had guns and they, had girlfriends, and, and I thought people respected them. They, people feared them is what they did. And I wanted to be just like them. And they were looking for some help, and I interviewed for the job and got it. <laughs> and, uh, and before long, I've got a car, and i got a gun, and I'm ripping and running, and I'm all that. And, uh, you know, i got a girlfriend. You, she, she wasn't really all there. You couldn't tell it by looking at her. Uh, but... Anyway, I got, I thought, well, I have what I want out of life. And, uh, I, uh, you know, that my life is going to be good, but what happened is the Texas Rangers came in and they arrested everybody and I got a five year sentence. And they told me if, if I would just not drink and report to the, my parole officer and fulfill the terms of my probation, that this would be removed from my record and I would be okay. And my dad, the only time my dad ever did this, he came down to see me while I was in jail, and he said, son, what in the world is wrong with you? And I told him, I don't know. And I said, I guess I need, I said, I, I guess I need to find God. I really wish I could go into ministry, you know. <laughs> and that sounded good to my dad, and it sounded good to me while I was in jail. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, when I got out, I thought, uh, you know, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to become a minister and, you know, save lives, but... I've been in jail for a while and I'm thirsty. So I got out and I got a job. Instead of going in ministry, I got a job as a uh, service station attendant. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm pumping gas and it turns out right across the street from my bar. And after about three weeks of pumping gas, reporting to my parole officer and being have, I had this thought, uh, that I was pumping gas and it just occurred to me that the guy I was pumping gas for could get out and do it himself. And uh, <laughs> that I was thirsty. And so I went in through the cash register and got a cash advance, went across the street, <laughs> and I had a drink. And when I came to, I was in Dallas, Texas, about 300 miles away, and I knew I was in a lot of trouble. And I hooked up with some more guys that we were doing the same thing, and pretty soon we're ripping and running, and my name is uh, all over the newspapers. and. The police are looking for me, and they're monitoring my folks' house. And my dad and my mom, they don't know what to do. You know, they're just like, they're full of shame. My brothers are, you know, embarrassed. And, you know, and finally I get arrested, and I got 13 five-year sentences, and I was sent off to the Texas Department of Corrections. And uh, I stayed in there for a number of years. And when I got out, uh, you know, while I was in prison, really not much happened. You know, they, they pretty well monitor everything. You stay out of trouble. And it just takes a long time to get it done. And, but as soon as I got, the, the whole time I was in there, I mean, I probably got drunk once or twice while I was in prison. And, and the rest of the time, I just sit and binge think, you know, just think. And, you know, when, what happens is, is that I, I went in there, I came out three year, three years sicker than when I went in, you know. And I came out, and the first thing I did was have a drink. And I didn't know I was an alcoholic. And I had a drink and headed back to West Texas to live out my life. And, 
in this time I realized I was going to have to change some things. So I, I remember my mom once said, son, what you need is a wife, a kid, a car, a bank account, a job, and a house, and you'll be okay. So I went looking for a woman that had kids, a bank account, job. And, <laughs> and I found her, and my mother was wrong. And that was the worst two weeks of my life. And uh, so I left her and I went back to my bar. I'm, I've got a bar now, that my, my main place in Odessa, Texas, and I'm back down in my bar and I'm just working on my plan for life and I'm down there drinking. And I, one night there, shortly after I'd left my wife, there was a girl come in and she was sitting over in the corner and she was drinking and crying. And I went over to, to talk to her. And as I found out her story, she was, uh, she was pregnant and couldn't go home. Her, her folks would not let her come home as an unwed mother. And uh, so she felt really trapped. And as I listened to the story, I started crying because I didn't have a home to go to. And so we hatched a plan and decided to get married. And so three days later, we got married. And uh, I called my mom said, Mom, I'm married. And she said, I know. I said, I don't know how you could know that. I just did it. And she said, oh, my God, you have a wife. And I thought, details. I am always... <laughs> I am always being tripped up by details. I just, uh, so, I, I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and go on my honeymoon. And so we got, we got on a Greyhound bus and God got a fifth of whiskey and we headed for, uh, my new home, which was her parents' home. <laughs> we got there and I was, I was pretty well lit and, and he was there to pick us up. He was in a chauffeur driven limousine. Very, oh, he was very, very powerful man, very well to do. We got in the car and went to his house. He had many, many bedrooms. I went upstairs and passed out in one of them. When I came to, I went downstairs and out on the veranda to, you know, to have a cigarette. And I looked across the street and I realized that I had just married the warden of McAllister, Oklahoma's daughter. And I thought, what are the chances of this? You know. I mean, you know, this is just like, you need to get a hobby. This is, uh, this is really getting old. And, uh, so I was very uncomfortable in that relationship. I, I went, so I, I left in just a few days and I'm back at my bar. And before long, my mom comes into my bar, which is embarrassing. And she says, Come with me. We're going to we're going to court. And I said, "What for?" She said, "We're going to get you a divorce and an annulment." And we went uh, we went to the bar and got to get this divorce and annulment. And I mean, to the bar to the court. <laughs> My mother did all the talking. My the judge didn't get to say anything. <laughs> Lawyers, uh, you know, she had it all planned out. And you know, he just listened to it. She explained she was going to move the whole family to Brady, Texas, where it was dry, and I wouldn't have anything to drink and had me a job, and he said, good plan. So we moved, the whole family moved to Brady, Texas, and I got, to, she had gotten me a job in a mohair plant. <laughs> My job was to stand by a loom with a pair of scissors, and this loom would make mohair and coil it into the, take mohair and into a rope and coil it into a, a, a barrel. And I was supposed to stand there with a pair of scissors, and when that thing filled up, I'd cut it. <laughs> and, I, and all the while, I'm just binge thinking, you know. <laughs> so I lasted about three or four hours, and uh, <clears throat> and I uh, I thought I'm not even going to go to HR with this. I just headed straight back to Odessa. And I got back to Odessa and, and uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just living life, doing the same thing I always do. And I, I can't, I meet a girl and we're really in love and we just, we're, we're very crazy about each other. And, uh, but we're also very sick and we hook up and we start ripping and running together. We lasted about three years. I, I, I got so violent during this time that she had to leave in order to save her life. And, and in the interim while she was gone, she was killed in a car wreck. And I didn't, I had no tools for dealing with anything like that. I just didn't know what to do with that at all. And I went on this big drunken crime spree with another guy. And once again, I'm in the papers and my family's, you know, humiliated and 
they're you know they're asking the neighbors where I am and it and I mean I mean it's just it's really a horrible situation for my family and uh, I finally got arrested. Uh, I, what I did is I broke into a bar. I was going to burglarize it, but apparently I decided to stay and party. And uh, <clears throat> so I came to, and they had me arrested, and I got uh, I got ten years, and I went back to prison. And uh, when I got out of I spent I spent three and a half years in prison, and in this time I did everything I could possibly do to change my life. I went, I got a GED. I started going to college. I took up meditation. I started reading philosophy. And I wouldn't hang out with anybody. I was I was trying to learn a trade uh, down there. Tried to be an electrician like my dad, and I would do creative visualization. And I just knew that that, that the answer was that I would I would have a job and I could take care of myself and I wouldn't do these things and then humiliate my family and I could have a life and live out on the streets. And I got out, <clears throat> and you know things went okay for a little while. And then I, I had pretty soon I had my own little place and I had a job. I worked for my dad and, you know, I wasn't showing up in the papers and I had long weekends sometimes. And because uh, I would, yeah, I would take a drink and I'd sometimes wind up in other towns or in a, in, in a holding tank, but nothing really serious. It's so improved. It looks normal to me. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and I'm thinking, I, you know, what's missing in my life and it's that I'm not married. So. I went out looking for a wife, and I found her. She was dancing on top of a table, and uh, I married her. And uh, she was my life changed. She'd carry out the trash, be gone three days, and so <laughs> she was a bartender. And I'd have to stay up nights drinking and guard her because she had this tendency to keep boyfriends. And I, and I would I would take amphetamines to try to go to work during the day, and before long, I just I'm you know I'm in a big mess. I'm not reporting to my parole officer. I have borrowed money and sold and and sold the equipment to finance my lifestyle, and you know I'm just in a, I'm just in a complete mess. And I would end up I have hepatitis, and this this is the girl who kicked me out of the car in front of the 710 club. And for the next two years, I went lived underground in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was hiding from my parole officer, and I went I went to Austin and Austin, Texas, and I, I, well, I didn't borrow. I stole a car from a guy that uh, I knew, and and, uh, and he you know, and it was a horrible car. He didn't even want it back. <laughs> and I, I was wearing an eye patch. There wasn't anything wrong with my eye. I I just thought I really looked cool, you know. It was sort of West Texas bling, you know, and uh, you know, and I'm living I'm living in this car, and I'm going to AA, and you know what? I, I loved being in AA, but I being sober made me tense, you know, because I'm the kind of guy I did I never could get it that you were telling me. I, I thought drinking was the problem, and I could I couldn't tell you that when I drank I felt better. And when I stayed sober, I got progressively more agitated. And I knew, I just didn't know how to communicate that, and I didn't hear you saying it. But finally, after two years of being with you guys, I had, I had hit a bottom on East Austin. Uh, one night I had been out on, on a binge, and, uh, and I just came to, I was in the back seat of that car, and I just puked green bile. And I was as sick as I could ever be. And I thought, God, if, I, if, if you don't help me, I'm not going to make it. And I said, God, I'll do anything if you just let me get sober. And uh, I guess he heard me because two guys from AA came from that club to get me. And when they drove up, they got me in the car, and I got in the hump in the back seat, and I'm riding back to the club with them. And I said, John, what am I going to do? And he said, oh, hell, Danny. He said, if you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> I said, well, how do I do that? He said, well, don't drink right now. And then when it's right now again, don't drink then either. And this kid that was with him, a little smart aleck, he said, yeah, and pretty soon you'll have a minute. And John said, John said, oh, hell, he said, don't listen to him. He said, those minutes will become hours, and the hours will become days, months, weeks, and years, and you'll find yourself a sober, self-respecting member of Alcoholics Anonymous with a good life and a message to carry. And I said, well, I want to do that. He said, then do what we do.
And so I followed him uh, into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I met John Henry McDonald. And he was one of the most exciting men I'd ever met in my life. He's just a little short firebrand, and he had a big book all the time, and he would quote things, and I asked him to be my sponsor. And pretty soon, you know, I'm, I'd be riding around that old stolen car all, you know, just tweaking, freaking out, you know, and what am I going to do? I mean, I was at a meeting at noon, and they said, let go and let God, and let go and let God what? You know, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but I'm about to come out of my skin, and I think... If I can just make it to the meeting tonight, John Henry will be there, and he'll know what to do. And I would see John Henry, and I'd, I'd say, John Henry, I, I don't, I can't make it. And he said, Son, you're not, you're not one of the guys who can just show up. You have to do something. We have a program in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went through the steps with him. I, I wrote an inventory and I shared it, and at the end of the inventory, he said, what's evolved here is a liar, a cheat, a thief, and one of the most selfish, self-centered people I've ever met. And if you want to live like that, you don't need any help. But if you want to be different, there's more work to be done. And uh, I went down on, by town lake to, to do six and seven, and when I, stepped out, when I stepped out of that old stolen car and my foot hit the ground, I felt this power just wash over me. And I felt clean and lifted up. And I knew I was in the presence of God himself. And I'd never have to drink again. And I was just like, God, man, I mean, this is this is it. And I'm going to go to the club and chair meetings and straighten the old timers out. <laughs> life is going to be great. I'll never have to drink again. And my life had, had improved so much. And I loved you. I loved being an AA. You know, and I'm... I went around and I did some of my, some of the amends I had to do and, you know, I was living comfortable the first time in my life. Now I'm still living under, you know, I've still got a lot of stuff that I'm hiding from. About six months sober, I, my life began to implode and I knew that I wasn't going to make it. And I started, man, I started going to different clubs looking for somebody that would give me some magic pill, some answer that would do it. And I found this one guy, I'd been sober a long time. I said, I told him what was going on. He said, well, I just get up every morning and I say, I'm a sober, healthy, happy, handsome, and exciting, loving child of God. I said, really? He said, yeah, that works for me. So I went out to that old car and tilted the rear view mirror. <laughs> I said my affirmation. I knew it wasn't going to work. And I uh, called John Henry, and he said, I said, I'm in a lot of trouble. And he said, I know. And I, he said, meet me at the club. And when I got to the club, I told him about my affirmation. And he said, well, Danny, the reason that it won't work is because it's not true. And he said, <laughs> he said, what's standing between you and that God that you've met down on Town Lake are the things that are on your eight-step list. He said, you have to go all the way through. And I said, well, there's some things I didn't tell you about. And he said, well, what are they? And I said, well, number one, uh, besides the fact that I'm hiding from my parole officer, there was a bank robbery in San Angelo, Texas in the summer of 1980. And they have it on videotape, and they have a warrant out for my arrest. I was in the area, and that is my M.O. And uh, he said, did you do it? And I said, I don't know. I'm a blackout drinker. He said, well, you're going to have to go down there and straighten it out. You've got to go in and talk to them. I said, I can't do that because they will put me in prison for the rest of my life. He said, you told me when we started this that you were willing to go to any length. I said, that's theory. <laughs> this they will lock me up for forever. And he said, well, get another sponsor because you won't make it. Uh, and I don't sponsor drunks. He said, "You, it's either do that or die." And I sat out in that car, and I, and I just, I was petrified. And I finally said the truth to God. I said, "I don't have the courage to do this. I can't. If you want me to do it, you're going to have to help me." And almost instantly, I felt that peace again, and it was just overpowering and wonderful. And I realized that that was. That was God. And the, the thing is, see, I learned that night that four walls don't make a prison. Prison is something I carry around inside of me. That I had a chance at this point, I could either continue to run and live life the way I always have, or I could do as you've done and trust God and walk down there and just be willing, willing to go to prison if necessary. And I wanted that freedom. I wanted that feeling, that, that wonderful feeling of being connected. 
And I went down the next morning, and I parked a good long ways away and walked up there. And, and when I went in and told that robbery detective who I was, he asked me where I'd been. I told him I'm in an AA. I've been in AA now for six or seven months. And he, I gave him my pitch, you know. And when I was done, he played that video for me. And it was a tall, skinny guy with a cowboy hat and a beard, glasses, going from till to till. He had a gun, and he was taking money. And it was about 15 seconds long, and as I watched it, I thought, I am so screwed. I'm, I don't wonder what I did with the money. <laughs> and at the second time he played it, he turned around and he looked at me, and he said, the guy I'm looking for wouldn't walk in here. He said, the guy I'm looking for is still out there, and we'll find him. He said, but you need to get your skinny butt back to AA and stick with those people because they have some idea of what life's about, and maybe you can do something about cleaning up the mess you've created. Now get out of here. And I said, I am an AA forever. <laughs> I made my amends to my, uh, to my family, my, my mom and dad. My mom set my amends up with my dad, you know, she... <laughs> Got, she got two chairs and set them down and got a couple cups of coffee and sat down and got nearby and monitored it. And, uh, and I started talking to my dad and I tried to, you know, I, you know, I didn't even know where to start because I never could talk to him. But as soon as I started, he just said, son, that's fine. I'm glad you're sober. I'm, you know, we're happy for you, and let's just get on with life. And he just wanted to sweep it under the rug, and so did I. And uh, so I, I go off, and I, I feel I've done my amends to my dad, you know, and I'm, I'm, it's all better. But I'm going to tell you, there was this, there was this wall between my dad and I. When I was really, really young, I had, I had had this memory since I, I mean, since three or four years old, I guess four of playing in the backyard in South Texas with my dad. And, and my dad was just home from the Navy, and he was big and strong. And he would play with me t until he was just, I was exhausted. And he had a big barrel-chested guy, and he didn't have a shirt on. When I was, when we were through playing, he would hold my head on his bare chest, and he would pat my head. And I, and I felt absolutely safe. I felt connected. I was in my dad's arms, and nothing could harm me. And I was the apple of his eye. And this disease had torn us apart. He had, he had just buried himself in work. He didn't, you know, you'd ask him about Danny, he'd say, Danny who? And, uh, you know, I, you know, I wanted to earn his love back and I didn't know how. And I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I listened to you and you told me what, do what it takes to be a good son. The first thing you guys taught me about dealing with my parents was, was that they're through raising you. So you don't call. If they call you and say, how's it going? You say, fantastic. And I said, well, what if it's not true? And they said, if you're not drinking, you're doing fantastic. You know? <laughs> so my folks would call and I would say I was doing fantastic. And I've stayed in AA and I tried to be a good son and a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, and I, I have lived life in AA. I've, I've been married and had businesses. I've had heartache. I've sponsored people. I sponsored a deputy sheriff. I loved that. I thought <laughs> sort of one of the gifts of the program. <laughs> I, uh, I've, I've met the most fabulous people in the world. I've seen, I have absolutely, with my own eyes, seen men who I knew were going to die give up stuff that they believed they were incapable of telling. And I've seen the change come over them. And I've seen them become productive citizens and all I was was a witness to that and it's just the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life and I love you and I loved being here and all this time I, I got lots of blessings and I had a business and I was doing good and before long I've created a mess and uh, because I'm going to sponsor myself often and uh, anyway it boils down to it I was 18, 19 years sober, and I was in a mess, and I had to uh, I had to clean up my life, and I called a guy in Dallas, and I went back through the steps, 
And I, I went back to Midland, Texas to clean up some stuff, and I've stayed at my mom and dad's house. And I, would, I went to the 710 Club to a meeting. And when I came in, my mother was waiting up on me. And I walked in the door, and I said, uh, you know, just off the cuff, I said, is, uh, is dad awake? And she said, he's laying in there pretending to be asleep. And I walked into his bedroom, and he's not this big, tall, strong guy anymore. Time has worn him down. And, I mean, he's like 82, and he's one of the greatest generation. It's the salt of the earth, and we love him dearly. And I walked in and looked down on him, and I just, I just leaned down and kissed him on his old bald head. And I said, I love you, Pop. And he pulled my head to his bare chest. And just He patted my head, and he said, I love you too, boy. He said, I'm so proud of the man you've become. He said, those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I hope you always tell them how much we love them and how much we appreciate what they've done for our family. Because, see, you've not only given me a chance for sobriety and a new life and, and set me on a path that I didn't believe was possible, but you've given, you brought my mom and gave my mom an opportunity to be an Al-Anon and to, to realize there was something in life other than Danny. <laughs> and you realize that she had a life. And she's, I mean, you know, right now, today, she's got, uh, she's got Parkinson's and, uh, you know, those, but she's got Al-Anon that helps her out and, and, uh, we're going, uh, we're going, whew. uh, I just got married and, uh, and she ain't crazy. She's pretty smart. Uh, <laughs> She loves my family. She's an RN, and we're going this week, this coming week. We're going to uh, to see my mom's going to have some electrodes implanted in her brain, and I know my dad's a little afraid. And we're all going to go, and I get to go and be there too. And I don't know how that. You know, I, I'm powerless to control the outcome. I don't know what God has in mind, but I'm going to be able to be there. And my mom uh, has always been there for me, and my dad. Is going to be there, and he's he's got emphysema, and he's got you know he's just getting over a, and some infection, and I'm actually kind of afraid. I don't still don't know about you, but I don't know how to act around my parents as they age and weaken, and I'm you know now I'm having to take a role that I never had, never knew how to take, you know, but I'm so glad that I've got you and I've got this relationship with God. That I can, I can just be honest and open. I wonder how many people in the world are able to do what we're able to do. You know, I, I have a primary purpose. I know what to do when I'm in a mess. I have men like Doug that I can talk to straight up and I can get healing. I, I know about prayer. I find my answers on the floor. I, uh, I'm the most blessed man in the world. There's no one any crazier than I've been. And I, you know, I've, I shot myself in the foot several times. In the past five years, I went, I went through bankruptcy. Hell, I had a guy that sp- I sponsored was coming and picking me up and taking me to a meeting. You know, I mean, I had, a, I had a created a real mess. And, uh, and, I, and I put this thing back together by following your advice, doing the next right thing. Quit making demands on God. Quit deciding that it had to be on my terms. Show up at the prisons, man. I mean, I, I went. I go to those prisons and I go in those things, man. And it is. I, I tell those guys, listen, guys, prison. When they let you out of here, they don't set you free. They turn you loose. And there's a big difference. You know, when you get turned loose, you're the same guy that you were when you walked in. If you want to be free, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Find a way to live free and. Uh, Man, I have, I have such a, a wonderful life. I mean, I, me and these guys, we went to prison here a while back. We, there's, there's four of us. We're all ex-cons, you know, and we're walking in this prison and man, it's raining straight down. And this one guy that's with me, he hands me an umbrella to, you know, and I start to open it up and it's, it's got a bunch of little old quail and it's pink. And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm an ex-bank robber for God's sakes. I'm not, oh, I'm not going to carry that into prison. And, I shut that thing down and stick it back in my back pocket and look up and he's got a Winnie to the Pooh. You know? <laughs> uh,
Yeah. I walked back in two weeks ago. I walked back into the very prison that I was discharged from in 1977. Walked right straight back by my old cell. And uh, I said, thank you, God, because I've been set free. I uh, I hate getting emotional, but I don't know how you can talk about what God does in the lives of human beings in Alcoholics Anonymous and not do it that way. I have such wonderful friends. And, you know, for me to get to just go around and talk with you guys and and follow people like Bob is just amazing. I love you very much. Listen, I want to tell you, the story of my life is still being written. And I deserve a good ending to this story. And so do you. And God bless you and thank you for listening to me.